Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Sean Kelly, the Samples guitarist and lead singer. Since forming the Samples in 1987, Sean has led various iterations of the beloved Colorado band, and he continues to delight fans with his music, navigating all facets of the industry. Welcome, Sean. Nice to be here. You've been working at a full-fledged career in music since you were 16 years old. Yes. Did it start with the open mic nights back in Vermont? It did. When I was 16, I was just strumming in my bedroom and learning how to play. And then the open mics happened half an hour on a Sunday night at the end of a long week working construction. It was so great to look forward to that. And that's when I met Charles Hamilton. Eventually, he and I drove out here to start a band. You dropped out of high school to pursue music? Kicked out, kind of. What's at the hook? Man, I don't know. Maybe escaping, number one. Oh, that's my out, if it's possible. And not having anything to lose. I was told I, I literally mentally retarded in eighth grade because I have such serious learning disabilities or whatever they are. And I just floundered. They didn't know what that was back then, so I just kept getting pushed to the wayside. And ironically, at the time, I was studying birds. So I would go to the library and... I absorbed everything birds that you could imagine. And that led them to letting me go to more of an adult library because I ran out of books in fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade. I was excelling over there and falling to pieces in the other area. And I think looking back, school seemed to reward you for memorization, remembering something, but not retaining it and not being involved in it. And if the teachers had said, Sean, what's six birds plus four turtles? They instantly would have had my attention and could have used that probably as a trick to get me over there. So I made it to halfway through ninth grade. Long story short, what do you got to lose? I had no pressure. I'm like, okay, I'm going to flip pizzas the rest of my life and do what society, what they're planning on for me. And if it wasn't for a friend of mine lending me a little acoustic guitar when I moved to northern Vermont from southern Vermont in the early 80s. It sort of became like the bird thing. I got obsessed with it. I got so involved in it. There's this certain click with my mind that'll hyper-focus, but flounders in other areas. But music ended up being math, science, history. It became everything. West of Albany, New York, and suddenly I'm not only in Colorado, but playing all over the place and playing colleges, which I never got to. I had nothing to prove, nothing to lose, but I loved music, so it really worked well. I never had a concern of what I looked like on stage or how I play, anything, nothing, ever. And so it became more of the heart and soul of music as opposed to the image of it, certainly. And you can survive when that's holding you up. You and Charles Hamberton, guitar Probably player. 86. Okay. I met him, and I was working construction for a place called Pizzigalli Construction on the campus of UVM, a laborer. So I get up five in the morning, drive there in a blizzard, dirty work all day, but it was six bucks an hour and that was enormous money. The minimum wage was 335. So I used to see this guy that looked like Jackson Brown walking every day with his books and his sunglasses past the Billings building, which is where I'm working. So we're coming from two different worlds. But we would go to a place called The Chic on Sundays and play. You got to play for 15 minutes in front of drunk people. 
so frightening, but it was a big deal. But that guy used to show up. And I finally, after a few Sundays, I went up to him and I'm like, do you go to UVM? Because I see you every day at a certain point walking past with your books. And we became friends immediately, so fast. And he comes from New Jersey and I'm coming from a duplex in Milton, Vermont on top of a hill where the water smelled like rotten eggs. We're living on a sulfur mine or something. I'm just remembering how different we were and how similar we were, too. And who was crazy enough to go with him when he called me out of the blue. And I was working a different job at that time. And he goes, get rid of everything you have, grab a pair of pants and your guitar, and we're going to Colorado. And it was during a blizzard. It was snowing out. And he goes, I talked to my brother, James, and he said they're barbecuing on 14th and Euclid in some place in Boulder. And it's 70 out in February. I remember turning 21 on my ride out here. I didn't have time to think about anything. I left my car that I had on the side of the road, never to be seen again, and went on what I thought was a trip where you go out somewhere, you put your tail between your legs and run back. And it was just too amazing when we came out here. And Charles, had he not grabbed me, there's no way I'd be doing what I do. He was such a great energy. It was all about how are we going to do something. There was no can'ts. There's no, this isn't going to work. Never. The crazier, the better. We used to throw glow sticks on us and projection. But he was like, we're going to do this. And... Within a year, we played Red Rocks. Very interesting. So I walk through the fields again. Sheldon. Yeah, I played with him before in my first band I was ever in in Vermont, and I had no idea he was living out here. He had just moved out like a month before. You put a drummer wanted ad on a campus bulletin board yeah. and was answered by a student, Jeep McNichol? Well, that was after it was answered by a weightlifter named Bruce. Bruce Wilson, this big monster. And we loved it because we were all these skinny little kids, <laughs> bowl haircuts. You just felt so great knowing Bruce is there. And, and there was a fight in a frat house once, and Bruce stood up behind his drums, and people, like, cruised. It was great. Then after that, Bruce didn't last. He goes, you guys are going nowhere. And then I was the one that had to tell him. Everyone chickened out, and they're like, we got to let him know he's got to go. And I'll never forget that conversation because I must have gone around it 10 times. And he's like, so you let me go. I get it. But I didn't know how to do that then. I didn't know how to deal with something that heavy. And Al Laughlin, keyboardist, you yeah. met at a party, a yeah, Boston transplant? Yeah, 14th and Euclid. Okay. Yeah. He showed up and brought a little keyboard that basically all it made was helicopter sounds. And we're like, <laughs> he's in. It was a Casio something. I don't know what it was, but they're like, we're like, that's a cool sound. And he just basically learned to play from that. Do that helicopter again. That's all he's got. The samples took their name for your survival technique, living on free samples at local supermarkets. Bruce. It was actually the Boulder Safeway, specifically. Safe. And the Boulder King Supers, because we lived on Lashley Lane when we first moved here, and that's where we would have gone first. And we got in trouble there, too. We're starving. We don't even know how we paid the rent initially. We had one, two, three, maybe four people in a tiny little place. And they had the bin where Cans were dented, and they were cheaper because of botulism or something. So when we shopped, we were picking out our own food and bending it. And so it'd be like, okay, that's 40 cents. But we were also doing film stuff. Back then it was 8 millimeter film. 
And Charles tried to put his thumb through it, and they caught him. They watched the footage, and he had to do community service for a little while. <laughs> yeah. He had a van, and he'd park it next to the house on Lashley Lane and do homework for kids going to see you, because Charles is very smart. And he was a graduate from UVM, but he'd go in the car and do their homework for 20 or 30 bucks. He was out there all the time. He's in his van, it's open, he's having a smoke, sitting there doing people's homework and tests. It was amazing, all the different things we did. The Samples played their first show in front of a handful of people at Tulagi, yep. the notorious nightclub. Easter Sunday, yeah. Played a ton of parties. Everything was party, party, party. And that was easy to do and great. And then the club owners realized if bands like Big Head and Band du Jour and 80 West, if they could get the party crowds into our bars, they're drinking our booze, it was smart. Years and years and years and years and years later, they were doing some remodeling inside and they found all these Easter eggs that we had hid because we had an Easter egg contest. We're way into it. This is our first gig. We're going overboard. Come to the Easter egg contest too. And there was like six people there. It didn't take long, relatively speaking, for the samples to become a sensation in local clubs. J.J. McCabe's Boulder Theater. The Walrus. At what point did you expand out of Boulder? The next summer, Charles booked it. He sat in his van and he called random clubs and he had a little spiel that he would say. We couldn't be the hometown heroes. We had to take this chance to go see what we could do out there. And with no support at all. We sleep in floors and everything. flag with jeep once we were playing in nantucket at the end of every show we're like and does anyone have floors we could sleep on some dude his friends let us stay at their place but the only sheet they had giant american flag that's what you have to have you have to really know how to adapt nothing can get in your way fans would get cassettes during summer break at CU, they go home across the country. All over. And a lot of those tapes we gave out. We didn't see that as a purposeful way to make money, but it was the only advertising you can get. We'd go to the Kinko's right across from the Dairy Queen, make our cassette covers, and that was a big deal to get a cassette. We were just like, whoa. We got those at a cassette dubbing place. It was great to watch a machine take one master cassette and spit out all these cassettes. And we're like, this is our ticket out of here. Everything was so magical back then to me. We had the whole thing down. We went to the Hare Krishnas on Wednesday to get free food. we go in and take our shoes off and cling bells, and they're desperately trying to get us to join. And then we had the happy hours over at the random hotel. We could just scrounge three bucks or four bucks each. You'd get a slice of pizza and a Coke. That was two days a week. We just knew where to eat. Then we got jobs at Dot Steiner, and it's like, oh, now the fox is in the hen house. <laughs> Eating along while washing dishes. You wrote a lot of songs, very frequently referencing environmental concerns, the rain, oceans. And most of those songs were written when I was 18 years old, before I got here. Most every song off the first album was written in Vermont. That first album, you recorded on your own, sold 5,000 copies, and then signed with Arista, a major label. It gets weird. We made that album for two or $3,000, I thought. But it was on a cassette, put it out. Then we had interest. Our first thing, 
was these two guys that signed us. We got a $50,000 deal. These guys came out of nowhere, said all this stuff was going to happen. They were going to do this, wanted me to quit my job, which I did, leave my apartment, which I did. It was the biggest mistake, but the best lesson I ever learned in my life and went into the darkest depression because we were so excited. But these people disappeared. We tried to find one in Nashville. We were supposed to go there and record at the Bennett house. It was a scam, so we had to pay a ton of money to get off of it, but it was us dreaming like it's that easy and be like, all right. Very strange. But then we got over that hump and then we played those songs and got them really tight, then came here and recorded them, but not initially for any record company. And then later, Eris assigned us and they took that record on. They did nothing though. We were dropped pretty quick when it came to the second album the machinations of recording for a major label. Being on Arista should have meant wide distribution, promotion, maybe some financial stability. That's the way it worked back then. The A&R guys were trying to get you to change the songs. Yeah. Uh, I know that I was open enough to be like, okay, we'll hear what they have to say about certain songs. And we took one of the songs and went in and re-recorded it for them. And it was the song, Did You Ever Look So Nice, except it had this really, really horrible chorus that they wanted in it. And so we wrote this chorus, and it was bad. Had it been really great, I'd be like, oh, we'll go for this. I like this. We're doing something cool. It's still us doing it. But this sounded so bad that I couldn't put my name on it. None of us could. And they were like, well, you either keep this version or we have to drop you. And that wasn't hard to make that decision. Charles left the band at that point? He was on the run or something for seven years. He went, I think he lived in the Antigua. He was trying to ride out some statute of limitations. Oh, he was a funny guy. After your experience at Arista, one of your goals was to let other bands know that they didn't have to feed the machine, that major labels were like drift nets. I remember that was the analogy you made. Well, so. they would just throw a net out there and see what they catch and pull it up in, and then whether they keep it or not is, yeah, they get absolutely just destroyed. But you could always fall back on touring. In a matter of four years, you went from this free-thinking Boulder band to yeah. a group with national impact. You opened for UB40, The Wailers, Johnny Clegg and Savuka. Bruce Hornsby, Sting, Lisa Loeb, we actually kind of discovered. Same with Dave Matthews, same deal. We played with them in a field in Richmond, Virginia, and I became immediate friends with Boyd Tinsley and had him come up and play with us on our set. And they were like the first band on the show, a day festival. We stayed in touch with Boyd and he played on a few of our albums. They modeled them after us in Boulder. They did all their videos in Boulder, gave them good visibility and stuff like that. After distributing your cassettes, you had a fan club of 7,000. That was there. before internet, right? At your performances, you started integrating the liquid light show. It was 16-millimeter projectors. It was two-slide projectors. I mean, it was the worst. We'd rent them at CU. It was amazing. It was my dream. I've always wanted to incorporate that. And we did that from the start with little 8-millimeter projectors at Tulagi's till Charles smashed it. He got so sick of it getting eaten in the projector, and he just grabbed it, I'll never forget it, and just... <clears throat> He must have felt so good because it was so hard working with those things because they're so fragile and they break and the, the light bulb would burn out and they're like $40 for a bulb. And 
But then we were at the Boulder Theater, and we had the size of the screen was easily the whole size of the back of the stage. And we had the weirder, the better. I mean, backwards, horses, they did all kinds of stuff. But it was so great. You could incorporate anything into it, and it just took the music in a whole, it was just really cool. You toured so hard at a certain point, you didn't even have a permanent home. You were living in a hotel. When I, I lived at the uh, Hilo, is that what it was called? The Hilo Hotel. I lived there for years. Different room periodically, but there was no point in getting a house or rental. I remember you telling me, I tell our manager, keep us starving. It's good for the art. I still say that. Because I just played the other night somewhere in Avon by myself and a big party. And the guy's pushing food on me. And I'm like, keep your musicians hungry. They're going to play so much better. You know? <laughs> He's like, what? Well, the food's over there, weirdo. You were the Charter Act signed to War Records, W-A-R, What Are Records, operated by some disenfranchised refugees from the corporate atmosphere. They had a model where they distributed directly to stores that fell through the cracks of the dominant channels at the time and offered some grassroots marketing, which certainly was suited to reaching your audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was great. No Room was such a great record. We did all the artwork on the floor in the studio we had scissors and we're just cutting out all the everyone had a square to make a collage or something out of a lot of funny things in there Eighteen months of touring after that record. At that point, you made a leap. You appeared on the Horde tour. You got to play with Blues Traveler, Big Head, Todd's Blues Traveler, Colonel Bruce, all these great bands. It was awesome. We fit in in there. There was one place where they had to have us headline in Massachusetts because the attention on us was so huge there for some oddball reason. And so usually it was always Blues Traveler, or they'd switch it depending on certain areas if another band was better, but it was really neat to think we got on here as this little whatever, and we got to headline a few of them. You got to perform on The Tonight Show, first television experience. It got canceled like 10 times, so by the time we did it, we'd get so excited, and it was that same feeling we all had with the record company guys from Nashville. So you learned real quick, that you have to be like realistically optimistic or something, you know what I mean? By the time it finally happened, we're just like... It's not going to happen. You don't know what to do because you want to stay positive, but you realize how volatile that is. And we were just going to play two songs, but the movie Groundhog Day had just come out. So Andy McDowell just got added to the lineup that day. So they had to cut our second song, but we had gone out and rented mariachi outfits. And we were going to come out as like the three amigos. It was so great. And it was going to make no sense. And it was just going to be awesome. Then we ended up doing a few videos out there with the outfits on. We weren't even thinking about music. It was just how are we going to look at our mariachi outfits? And so we all wore them to get ready for the song When It's Raining. Didn't happen, but we had the outfits on, so we all went out afterwards and going to certain bars, and we were in Clint Eastwood's limousine, for whatever it matters. And at the bars, they were like, gentlemen, we're going to have to keep your guns, because we had these little plastic guns. <laughs> had we been able to play that with the outfits, it would have been great. You wanted the samples to be part of a nationally recognized scene here in Denver and Boulder. 
the wine bottles, the regers, oh, yeah. bands like that. You knew they had potential, and you supported them. Always. You were traveling, so you saw what was going on in other areas. There was no better place to make music. So many. I don't care if it was a street musician. The guy Jeff, who used to go down there and play on his guitar, we used to bring them up to our shows and be our warm-up acts. We'd grab them off the Pearl Street Mall and give a lot of people exposure. I don't know what it was about that that it was pretty amazing. And your advice to those bands, your fellow Boulder musicians, worry about your audience. Well, that's who you're working for. You could be Milli Vanilli and have the whole thing to the point where it's so fake you're not even singing, and still you can't maintain it. The machine can't keep that going. The machine's not what you want to focus on. Your audience, they're the boss. That's who you're working for. You said that South by Southwest, the big conference in Austin, was like a Billy Graham crusade for the big lake. Kind of crazy down there. We did one or two of those. Yeah. I never understood what any of that stuff was. I know it was all very important, but it was more like stuff you had to do along the way. Some things we'd do, some we wouldn't. You were finding some success by industry metrics. Autopilot, the fourth CD, debuted at number one on the Heat Seeker charts and Billboard, the national chart for the best-selling titles by up-and-coming artists. With my hands, I will build you castles in the sands and the promise of the You were equally prolific on your own. You were putting out solo records by this juncture. Lighthouse Rocket. That's where everything was falling apart, though. We were not getting along. It was bad. That was the beginning of the end that whole time right there. Al was stealing our equipment, ending up in jail. Jeep and I want to kill each other. Andy's just smoking pot. God bless all. It was bad. You would manage the success without the backing of a big-time record company, but when your contract with War expired, you hooked up one more time with a major label, signed with MCA. We flipped a coin that day. It was that or Hollywood Records that landed on MCA. The Music Cemetery of America. I think I used to say that. (laughs) I don't think they like you. Seemed hopeful you were going to make a record without having to worry too much about going over budget in the studio. You delivered the musical goods with a slow motion crash. The drummer for Neil Young, Crazy Horse, Ralph Molina, contacted me because he had heard that song on K-Fog or something. And he thought the lead sounded like Neil Young's and he wanted to write songs with me. And we ended up losing touch with each other, but he sent me some demos on a cassette. And I'm like, Jesus, I'm getting a letter from my heroes. Something interesting on that album as well, you also re-recorded some of your previous material, new versions of old samples, favorites mm-hmm. like Did You Ever Look So Nice? We always thought they worked great when we play live in front of a new audience. People know that song immediately. That was like our test all along the way, like, let's do that tune. We got it. And so each time we'd get on a label that seemed like it'll have a push behind it, now let's push that song. 
but it never happened. MCA, there's a changing of the executive guard. That didn't help things. Like most major labels, they were looking for their next big thing, their Alanis, their Hootie at the time, and that wasn't you. No, we don't have the next best thing vibe. We just have the, can we find a machine that is smart enough to see that this is all working out here. We're testing it. You don't have to start from zero and do weird ploys to get attention and draw stuff. It's working. All you have to do is go up and light it. That's it. And no one had the vision for that. That was every company we were with just didn't have the vision to do that. You opened for Sting on a short tour. Yeah. You heard the noise. You have a wonderful tenor voice, much like the headliner. I (laughs) love his voice. I used to love it much more in The Police. But you got a barrage of comparisons. In the beginning, it bugged the hell out of me, but that's normal, I think. You're dying to be identified as yourself, and it's like, that's not going to happen. He was a teacher. I'm a high school dropout. There's too many differences, you know. (laughs) I'd sing nature, and he'd sing nature. He's got that British ah. They don't do R's, and I'm very R. We were children in our places With the world beneath our feet Growing up was on our faces I remember you're so sweet Did you ever look so nice? Things had gotten really dark and poisonous within the band. You took great pains to introduce your therapist at that juncture. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh I immediately went and got help and tried to get us all in there. But MCA paid off your contract. That was one of my tricks. There's so many little tricks I pulled. They refused to drop us, so we were potentially stuck on MCA permanently. I mean, like, the worst, worst in all the Elvis contracts, everything, we had a bad deal. So they said... The only way they could drop us is if they didn't take our next record. So I came up with an idea because we want to be off. We had to make an album that was so bad but good enough to pull (laughs) off that this is our next album. Are you going to take it and put $350,000 behind it or are you going to drop us? And they dropped us, which is great, but that was the freaking goal. So there's this weird album out there called The Tan Mule, which named after this guy's car from Manchester, Vermont in the 70s. He used to drive around with his sisters and mom or something in the car. And we're like, okay, let's come up with an album, The Tan Mule. So we named it that and had weird country stuff on it. I'd Charles come help out on a couple songs. I mean, we did it for 400 bucks maybe. had to come off like this is real but they had to be bad enough so that it was such a tough thing to pull off and your whole goal normally is to make everything as good as possible so it's like no this is getting too good mess it up there i'm gonna write something about dogs makes no sense nothing and they dropped us and it worked there was a couple other things that happened like that we were lucky i'd never sign anything again in my life there has not been one instance where that has ever worked I don't know why, but it just, I'm never going to do it again. 
You rejoined War Records, released three more albums. You had introduced a brand new samples lineup with Rob Summers, James from Lord of War. Well, everyone wanted to say that was it. And it's like, wait, just because Al's got some legal issues and Jeep's deciding that this isn't his kind of music. So I've been doing all the damn work. Why am I going to get penalized? So I'm like, Andy, let's try and find some musicians. That became like a really great, great, great moment again. It worked. We made some good music, a couple good albums. And you managed how you always had with the samples, touring tenaciously. You're really out there to make a presence. Touring has never been lucrative. There's no way, ever, ever, ever. You're paying a hundred grand a tour to go out and try to stir up a little back catalog stuff or get people interested who are new. It's cost a lot, but that was the best thing we ever could have done, man. You've done it continually since then, rebirthing yourself as an independent band. Yeah, but the party I just played for this weekend in Avon, one guy I met had seen us at all the, the Tulagis. We were talking about these stories. It was funny, but they still want to hear it. It's many years later. But you come back in debt and a lot of troubles, and you have to. I had to give my car to a bass player once when I got back from a tour. My tan mule. I bought a car and I named it the tan mule. It was a Jeep. <laughs> But I couldn't pay this bass player. We did so bad, and I'm just like, would you take my car? So I had it sent to Rutland, Vermont. You know, you've had to do what you got to do, man, all the time. You were living in Connecticut back around 2000. You were dealing with oh, your yeah. father's death. At the time, it begged the question whether you had moved away from Colorado for good. You can't move from here. I came back immediately. I was going through a strange time. A lot of disillusion in this business and all the stuff finally kind of does catch up. But I always model what we do so it gives hope. Around 2003, you look to your fans and mm-hmm. their generosity with the Lifetime Pass mm-hmm. initiative. That got offered, us out of a massive hole. You offered fans a special commemorative laminate. It was an invitation for them to place a value on what your music meant to them, and they responded. And they got a pass, a Lifetime Pass. It gets them into any show free. Kind of the honor system that people aren't making these at their house. We have a great audience that wouldn't do that. Yep. And they donated 17. a couple thousand dollars or 500 bucks, and it went into our, at the time, this guy was working as a manager into an escrow account, and that got us up and going again. It was amazing. Could it be another change to come and rearrange? Why can't you just feel that way? The sample's music was exposed to a new crop of listeners in the typical organic way when Could It Be Another Change from the very first album appeared as the opening track on the soundtrack to the film The Perks of Being a Wallflower. This is mm-hmm. 2012. We got the information from War that someone wanted to do this, and then when we got to the bottom of it, the producer was a huge fan. Once again, you're taking one thing out of hundreds of songs and that song was, it's like, whatever, it's cool, I guess. But if you go online now and you look up that song on YouTube, there's kids that are 12 and 13 years old singing away. Tons of them. There's no end to it. But meant that much to them because of the power of the movie. Or they like the song, whatever, but they're all sitting there learning it. And I would write some of them and be like, you know, hey, I wrote that. I just want to say, that's a great job. And I wouldn't hear back because I'm sure it's like some mid-50-year-old guy, stranger, writing these people. And they're like, I don't know, what, who's that? 
some ridiculous amount of people that are constantly listening to that. That's just put in a movie. That's just dropped in. There's no video. There's no crazy stuff. you imagine if someone had embraced the samples over the years like that and put us in film especially because it so lends itself to film and we used to do our music to the films behind us and that should just be enough right there to say something, okay? I, I think it just was too deep. I really do. And now where our day is now, where we are, it makes sense to me. You don't want deep-thinking people on this planet. A great man once told me, you have to be committed for a career in music because you have to put up with a lot of heartache. The joys are unbelievable, like the heartfelt letters you get from people. But you have to be tough. Oh, it was me? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> was I smoking something that day? Was I making this up? Was you... I quoting from something? Well, my dad was a World War II veteran, survived the Battle of the Bulge. My mother was a single parent in the 70s, raising five boys. I grew up around nothing but strength. Rubber hits the road kind of stuff. And so that's good to have. Those are good things to draw from. Sean, what's your favorite musician's joke? What is the worst thing you could hear when you're giving Willie Nelson a blowjob? That's not Willie Nelson. (laughs) (laughs) The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C-O-L-O music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder-based, vertically integrated, consumer-focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.